morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, page 813 in the church Bibles, if that would um, be of some help to you. We're going to read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 12. While you're turning there, just a couple of things. We're, we're going to be heading on to the passages in Corinthians that teach us about spiritual gifts, uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14 specifically. So, um, under God, we're going to learn, maybe relearn, maybe learn something new, or maybe be corrected, uh, depending on how things go. Second thing I want to tell you is I want to um, thank Dale Geisler for filling the pulpit for me while I was away last week. Uh, Dale's a good friend. He is a colleague of mine, and he's a necessity in my life. So I just want to take a moment to, to thank him for doing that. All right, let's hear the word of the Lord. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one say, can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. May God grant us understanding of it. Let's, let's pray together. Just a brief moment of silence, and then we'll, then we'll pray. Father, we thank you so much for the songs that we've sung, declaring the great work of Jesus. And we thank you this morning for those who gave their life proclaiming Jesus as Lord. We stand on the shoulders of those who looked away from themselves and looked to you, the living God, in obedience to declare that truth and live a life that declared that truth. And Father, this morning with our Bibles open before us, we do humbly ask that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher, that we would have clarity in our thinking, myself in speaking, and clarity in our understanding and a humility of heart in our learning, which would welcome your truth, no matter how painful it might be. And God, as individuals and indeed as your congregation, we ask that our lives would be more and more marked by all that we turn to now and will turn to in the coming weeks. And we ask this in Christ's name and for Christ's sake. Amen. Only God's Spirit can empower God's people to accomplish God's plan. Only God's Spirit can empower God's people to accomplish God's plan. There are other forces in the world. Do you see that in verse 2? There are other forces in the world which move people to do many things. But again, only God's Spirit can empower God's people to accomplish God's plan. Some of you might know those wonderful verses in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might and nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ. John six sixty three. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. And as it was in Corinth, so as it is today, the idea of spiritual gifts, spiritual endowments, spirituality is something which is typically marked by confusion and marked by controversy. Confusion, what are these gifts? How do they function? And are they still around today? Controversy because of the abuse or misuse or complete dismissal of these gifts as people lay down their ultimatums on these things. 
And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that there is no area in Christian doctrine which is more vital to the spiritual health and more so the effectiveness of Christ's church than a right understanding and the right use of spiritual gifts in Christ's church. For this reason, and I want you please to listen carefully, ignorance, ignorance will breed those who are open to wrong teaching. Wrong teaching will always lead to wrong thinking. Wrong thinking will always lead to wrong living. And wrong living ultimately generates ineffectiveness in the body of Jesus Christ. In essence, think of it this way. If we believe the wrong thing, then we'll behave in the wrong way. Therefore, the overriding emphasis of God by His Spirit through Paul's pen in these chapters 12 through 14 is absolutely clear, and it's this. There is only one Holy Spirit in the church. And this one Holy Spirit, in all that he does, this is crucial, in all that he does, shines the light on, promotes the ultimate reality that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is unsurpassed, he is Lord, and he is the most important over anything or anyone else in our existence. And this one Holy Spirit who promotes the preeminence of Jesus Christ is the Spirit of unity. And this Holy Spirit loves unity and dislikes disunity. And love, chapter 13 and the end of 12, do you see it there? Love is the Spirit's most excellent gift. And at least seven times we're told here that we all have come to share in one and the same Spirit as Christians. The Holy Spirit, the great uniter of the body of Jesus Christ. And so committed... Is the Holy Spirit in these things is that he is not distant from the believer. He is present fully in every believer. Now, I want you to think of this privilege. The indwelling presence of the third person of the Trinity actually in that great mystery housed in us as Christians. So what we're talking about is the close, personal, giving, helping, indwelling powerful, real presence of the Holy Spirit in every genuine believer's life who works, us, who works in us to draw us to Christ. To draw us into the preeminence of Jesus Christ, His beauty, His necessity, His ways, His words, and His deeds. And then the Spirit fashioning us to be more like Christ. In order that, verse 3, do you see it there? Jesus is Lord. It's not some formula that we rattle off. It's not a slogan on our t-shirt. It's not a you know, bumper sticker. It's a confession that we hold to, which represents our life and our conviction. The Holy Spirit, the great uniter, the Christ promoter, and the giver of gifts to his church. And all that starts with regeneration. And that's our first point. If you have a worship folder, you can see in the back there. We'll work through those three points. The first point is regeneration. Now, right away, you might ask, why begin here? It's not so straightforward in the text, is it? Well, here's why I begin there. We've been learning how the Corinthian church was full of problems, full of questions, and many were full of themselves. There were some in the church who were divisive, and they were divisive in part because they were not holding to basic Christian doctrine— and chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, they were worldly. Okay, what's a divisive person? A divisive person is worldly, and they don't hold the basic truth. 
And because of this, they were certain that they had a handle on all there was to know about spirituality. You could say it like this. They were arrogant in their ignorance. It's a very dangerous combination. An arrogant person who is ignorant in basic Christian doctrine. So what do you do with a group of people who are worldly and, verse 1, chapter 12, ignorant? Well, you take them back to the basics. To the basic truth, verse 3b, you cannot speak truth about Jesus. You cannot exalt Jesus in your life and in your lips or with your lips except by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that is in every Corinthian Christian who some of you Corinthians keep judging and dividing. Okay? Regeneration. How can it be that deep down in the Christian's inner being, what we most long for, what we most work towards is the honor and glory of Jesus more than anything else. I mean, I'm certain that every Christian in here has had those thoughts. How can I honor Jesus more? How can Jesus be glorified? That's basic Christian um, thought. Yet, we still see, if we're going to be honest, we still see all the depravity still in our life. But deep down still, we long for Christ to be honored. We long for Him to be glorified. We want Jesus Christ to win everything. We want to live and speak, affirming by lip and life that Jesus is Lord, that He's King, that He's the preeminent thing in the life and my life and universe. And then we want to use these gifts which the Spirit has so graciously provided to see Jesus Christ build His church, uh, see Him build His kingdom, to see people to faith in Jesus Christ, to make sure that our brothers and sisters in the church are well served and maturing and walking in the truth as we exercise these gifts that were given to us by the Holy Spirit. How does that begin? Well, it begins with a tremendous commitment that I make about commitment. And I, we, lots of committed people. Is that how it begins? It does not begin that way. It begins by regeneration. It begins by grace. It begins by the work of the Spirit. Listen to your Bible. John chapter 16, verse 7 and following. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is talking to the twelve and he's telling them before the cross, I'm, I'm going to go. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And the key word there is the word convict. In the Greek language, it was a courtroom word. It was described uh, by, uh, by way of cross-examination in the courts. And this is what Jesus is telling us. He's telling us that he will send the Holy Spirit to cross-examine men and women and young people, and the Holy Spirit will show us our guilt. So the Holy Spirit, John 8, 13, is a spirit of truth. He begins to press home to us the truth that there's this massive gap in our lives, a gap between what is real and ideal, between proclamation and application. The Spirit exposes us. He shows us what we really are. And we begin to echo the Bible's truth that even my best deeds, my best deeds are filthy rags. So we begin to see the heart of sin. John chapter 8, verse 9. People don't believe in Jesus. Isn't that the heart of sin? Whether Christian or not, I don't believe in you, Jesus. I don't believe what you say, what you want, what you did. I won't do what you want me to do. And all of us here, whether we are converted or not, in varying degrees, when we sin, we do this. Now, the pagan does it full tilt. We understand it. They, they can't help themselves. The Christian still sins in this way in bits and pieces. Jesus says, do this, and at times, we don't. Okay, so then we need something. 
Well, Jesus, in his mercy by God's plan, doesn't just risk his life. He gives his life on the cross so that men and women and young people can have eternal life. He pays in death and blood on the cross for us to be forgiven, for us to be reconciled to God, for us to have peace with God. And so that may all begin in in vague feelings that people might have in their bellies that something is just not right. Or that might begin when we're confronted finally about the reality of our death or the reality of our children's death and we're not so confident about what's going to happen after death to us. Or it could happen a million other ways because John 3 tells us that you just can't pin down the Holy Spirit when He works in a person's life. But suddenly, the Holy Spirit floods us with our need of God's forgiveness. He proves to us our guilt. He shows us our inability to pay that debt even on our best moments. And then he takes us to the place. Now pay attention here. He takes us to the place where we see that Jesus is the one that we so desperately need. Jesus, not good deeds. Jesus, not religious exercise. Jesus, not spiritual experiences. Jesus. And when that happens, by the Spirit's power, Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then we are brought to a decision. Since Jesus is Lord, I can be saved by Him, or I can be eternally condemned by Him. And the Spirit begins to show us the beauty and the magnificence and the preeminence of Jesus Christ, how Jesus Christ is incomparable, and we see the God-man Jesus Christ as He is. There's a hymn that has the line, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. But the Holy Spirit does move. And we begin to say, Lord Jesus, I'm not king over my world. I'm not the center of the world. You are, Jesus, you are. And Lord Jesus Christ, I bow before you now. Forgive me because Jesus, you won my heart. Jesus, you are incomparable. Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are my ruler. Jesus, you were never less than that. Never. You ruled the world. And Jesus, now you rule me. And loved ones, the very power we needed to say yes to Jesus, we find out, though it was our own thought process and our own decision and our own words, nevertheless, the power that we needed to say yes to Jesus came by way of grace by way of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, because dead people can't make themselves alive. We were dead in our sins, Paul says, Colossians 2. But God made us alive. Titus 3, Christ saved us through the washing and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Because, you see verse 3, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, Jesus is Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. John 6, 63, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. So regeneration, if you had to give like a textbook definition, this is from uh, Theopedia.com. Regeneration is the spiritual transformation in a person brought about by the Holy Spirit that brings the individual from being a spiritually dead person to become a spiritually alive person. Okay. So then when a person says yes to Jesus then Jesus promises that he'll send his Holy Spirit to dwell in the person's life so that the believer is, listen carefully, he's joined by the Spirit to Christ, he's joined to the Spirit of truth, and he's joined to the family of God. So that the very moment we're converted, the moment we say Jesus is Lord, because we can't say it unless by the Spirit's power, 
the advocate, the counselor, the paraclete, the, the comforter comes to us so that Jesus, through the Spirit, is with us. Well, think of this. He's with us everywhere and always. Everywhere and always, Jesus is with us. We were kidding about this in our Thursday night elder meeting. Those of us who, who find ourselves curled up in a fetal position at 3 a.m., you know, we want to wake up our wife one more time, and she says, wake, make, wake me up again. Just try it again. You know, I haven't had a full night's rest with you in like 25 years. Just zip it. Well, we can know in those dark moments that Jesus is with us fully and completely. That's re- regeneration, okay? How do you help a stiff-necked, full-of-themselves, ignorant-of-the-truth people but still think they know everything, prepared to tell everyone they know everything and they know best, how do you help them? You take them back to the basics. Chapter 1, verse 29 of 1 Corinthians. It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, there can't be any boasting. And of course, he says it because they are boasting. I know more than you. I am more spiritual than you. I have more of the Spirit than you. And because I have more of the Spirit, I can say things. Paul's reply is basic Christian doctrine. Hey, you super terrific Christian, with your amazing spiritual gifts and experiences, you could never have said Jesus is Lord. That little baby phrase, you could never have said that except by way of grace and except by way of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that is in every person you you want to put down. Hey, you puffed up Corinthian. In light of the fact, verse 7, chapter 12, do you see it there? Spiritual gifts are given for the common good and not personal glory. In light of that fact, why are you going around in the church saying, I'm a healer, I'm a healer, Uh, I'm a teacher, I can prophesy, I have a word of knowledge, Uh, I can speak in tongues. Why are you doing that? These are gifts. You didn't do anything to get them. I mean, you can almost hear Paul cry out, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you didn't receive? Right? Every gift that we have, congregation, our our regeneration, our conversion, our sanctification, our glorification one day, our money, our talent, our everything, all our gifts is a gift. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why, why do you boast? And why do you behave like it was all you? Like it was all you. First word, regeneration. Second word, information. That's verse one. Now, about spirituality, and I say that because actually the word spiritual gifts is actually one word, one Greek word, and it's spirituality. Now about spirituality, and of course they translate that because it's, the section is about gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant. Agnoeo. It's the word that we get our English word agnostic. I don't want you to be without knowledge. I don't want you to be uninformed concerning spiritual gifts. And of course many thought that they already knew everything they were to know about spiritual gifts, which again was part of the problem. But to be fair, and I want, <laughs> listen carefully, the, the danger of a chapter like this is that the go-getters in the church who, who willingly and easily go for it, I mean, they just throw themselves into the work, and we thank God for them. We need more and more people who just throw themselves into the work. But the danger is that they might speed past the rest of us in the use of their gifts And then they begin to take pride secretly or openly that they do so much more than everybody else for Jesus. So if they do that, then love, you see chapter 13, verse 4? Love, which says we need to be long-suffering with others, 
Love, verse 5, which keeps no record of wrong. Love, verse 7, which protects people, is totally removed from the equation. So, so you have the prideful. They need to be informed about spiritual gifts. You have the very active. They just need to be reminded about the use of the, of, of the spiritual gifts. And you also have the inactive, right? Basically, you have people just coming to worship services. They're not really using their gifts at all. Or if they're using them, they're not very effective in them. And they need to get going, and they need some help so they can rightly use their spiritual gifts. And to do this, then, Paul has to explain to them what is true spirituality, what's true, and what is not true. And so he went back to the basics in regeneration. He goes back to their pre-converted state. Verse 2, this is not spirituality. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or the other, you would influence and led astray to mute idols. So the context is very important. In Roman and Greek culture, at that time, um, pagan cults had a massive influence. They were called the mystery religions. And, and essentially, these occultic activities, it was bread and butter of the culture, just like sports today. I mean, we could say with a degree of certainty, sports is bread and butter in our culture. Well, these mystery religions dominated that context. So it was superstition, it was bizarre, it was dramatic, it was ecstatic, it was a sight and sound extravaganza, it was a mood-affecting thing. And in this, something was happening, Paul says it there, something was happening, whether it was real or imagined, but something was happening, but verse 2b, it influenced and it led you astray. In other words, it only spoke to the flesh. So, So in reality, it was very sensual. And sensuality will always lead to immorality. And, and I'm not only talking about sex here. That, that's too easy. You see, these people in these experiences would just please the flesh, their old nature. It was only a feeling. If you would, it was a goose bump religion where, where they had to have the goosebumps. And if they had the goosebumps, then it was real. If they didn't get any goosebumps, then it wasn't real. But when it was done, it was done. Hence, either A, they need to go back and get some more of that, or they need to tell others so they can get kind of like a mini buzz. So Paul tells them, you have grown accustomed to being moved and influenced, led astray by some kind of supernatural force, whether demonic or otherwise. These mute idols, which place them into these states of, of ecstasy, moving them often into some weird course of action before they came to Jesus Christ. And those experiences were regarded as normal. They were to be expected. They were longed for. And of course, the more you had those experiences, the more spiritual you apparently were. But if you did not have those experiences, then either you were suspect or the god or goddess you worship were suspect and you might have to switch teams. And of course, some of them did that. And at that point, Paul is beginning to drive home this absolutely essential point. Spiritual experience is not the test of God at work. Again, spiritual experience is not the test of God at work, nor is it the test of spiritual maturity. I mean, they had plenty of experiences before they came to Jesus Christ, but it led them astray. And some of us might have come from Christian backgrounds where experience was very much the test. In fact, it was the only test. And Paul says, no, it's not. Spiritual experience is not the test of God at work. So the pagan, whether in Corinth or Cohasset or Chicago or wherever, they can have these spiritually amazing experiences, 
whether they're self-induced or demonically inspired, whether they're physical or emotional or even spiritual, it can happen. In fact, unless I miss my guess, most of us have had people speak to us about what they saw, what they felt, what they heard, what they dreamed in these spiritual experiences, and they judge us to that same end if we would say, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they hang their relationship with God only on those experiences. And, and that's important because, by golly, we live in a world where the experience test is the main test of authenticity and spirituality. I mean, that, that's a fair statement, isn't it? How do you know it's real? Well, they had this spiritual experience. Okay, well, let's go over there and see if we can copy it or get into that. This comes from a, a commentary that I was lo- using that helped me understand that culture. And this is a statement about that culture in the first century. Through frenzied hypnotic chants and ceremonies... Worshippers experience semi-conscious euphoric feelings of oneness with the god or goddess. Often the ceremonies, see they had ceremonies, would include vigils and fasting, a religious thing, and chants and incense and smelly stuff and other physical and psychological stimuli used to induce ecstasy, which included out-of-body trances. Similar to some Hindu practices where the person is insensitive to pain. Seen that when they walk over the hot coals, it just pops in my mind. Or the Buddhist goal of nirvana, the divine nothingness. So the uninformed mind, when something happens of supernatural effect, they immediately say it must be God. If a person performs a miracle, they immediately say it had to be God. If something is working and and moving people, then it must be right and it must be good and it must be God. But Paul says no. Spiritual experience is not the test of God at work. And no one is saying experiences are wrong. I mean, I'm not judging those experiences that way. But the real test is, verse 3, does the experience lead me to say, by lip and by life, Jesus is Lord? See, that's the question. That's the question. Does my spirituality lead me to say, by lip and life, Jesus is Lord? So I'm not unspiritual if I don't speak in tongues. I'm not unspiritual if I've never had a vision or heard something in my head from God. But I am unspiritual if I deny the lordship of Jesus Christ and my basic Christian living. So you say, well, that's so basic. Yes, it is basic. And we will never, ever, ever, ever grow past that. Jesus is Lord. Okay, that takes us to our final point. You might be happy to know. Number one, regeneration. Paul say, what do you have that you didn't receive? Your, your, your regeneration, your conversion, your endowment of spiritual gifts, all God. All God by a spirit. What the Father planned, the Son performed, and the Spirit applied. So, Corinthian church, get over yourself. Get over yourself. Information. Hey, guys, I'm going to tell you that all you need to know about spirituality and spiritual gifts so you won't be ignorant. And by the way, all that's pagan spirituality stuff, don't try to baptize it and say that that's spirituality and then try to bring it into Christ's church. Don't do that. Don't do that. This morning I read a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis. The whole lesson of my life has been that no methods of stimulation are of any lasting use. They are indeed like drugs. A stronger dose is needed each time and soon No possible dose is effective at all. We must not be bothered about thrills at all. Do the present duty. 
bear the present pain, enjoy the present pleasure, and leave emotions and spiritual experience to look after themselves. What's he saying? Jesus is Lord. That's the test of spirituality, the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives. Finally, new creation. And these are the effects of of being a new creation. Verse 3. Therefore, I tell you, no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. Jesus, be anathema. And that probably happened in some of the pagan meetings. And I suspect it was probably happening in some of their Christian meetings. People being so ecstatic, they couldn't control themselves. And they'd say something foolish and wrong and evil, like Jesus, be cursed. And then he goes on to say, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, you know and I know that to say Jesus is Lord means much more than words. I mean, anyone can say that. Uh, Creeds recited don't convert. So, again, let's remind ourselves of the context. This was the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire at that time, there was a wonderful phrase that they used, and they said, Caesar was Lord. Caesar was the Son of God. Caesar was Lord. And that was a Roman creed. And as a citizen, you had to aspire to that, believe that, say that. In fact, the early Christians took that phrase, Caesar is Lord, and they ripped out Caesar and they put in Jesus and they were saying, Jesus is Lord. So when the Christian would stand before the Roman tribunal and they were asked the question, is Caesar Lord? The Christian would reply, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I believe that Jesus is Lord. And of course, that was treason and that would be death. The Apostle Paul died saying that little phrase, Jesus is Lord. He died with the conviction that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, to say Jesus is Lord is basic, but it's not baby talk, and it will cost us. It will cost us. So in preparing for this talk, I I heard of a soldier who went to his chaplain and said, Chaplain, I want a cross so I can put over my bed space. The chaplain said, Why do you want a cross to put over your, your bed space? Well, he said, many of the other soldiers have have nude pictures hanging above their bed space. So I thought I'd put a cross. Now, there's a brother who is affirming Jesus as Lord. A mark of the Spirit on him. He's doing his best in that context to say something that Jesus is Lord. So when when he goes into that barracks, Lord Jesus, help me. Lord Jesus, help me. Amidst all that evil, help me. Or think of the bus driver who I read this week. This was about three and a half years ago. He went to work to find out he was due to drive a bus which had on the side of the bus the slogan, the atheist slogan, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy life. And he said, I can't drive the bus. I can't drive the bus because Jesus is Lord. He told his boss and he was sent home. See, Jesus is Lord and owning him as Lord is a cost. The lordship of Jesus Christ then is the mark of of the Spirit's work in a believer's life. The Lordship of Christ is spirituality, is maturity. So so think with me. You remember when Jesus was asking the disciples who he was, and then Simon Peter said, Jesus, you're the Christ. And remember what Jesus said? He said, Peter, you didn't get that because you were the smartest one in the group. Peter, you didn't get that because you were the most spiritual, you did the most studying. No, flesh and blood didn't do this, Peter. No, you received this information by my Father. It's a miracle to believe in the reality and the truth of Jesus. No one can say Jesus is Lord except, verse 3, by the Spirit. So that is assurance then to real Christians. The proof that God is at work in you is not only according to the gifts. 
Rather, it is the conviction that Jesus is Lord. You believe this, you, you long for this to be known, and you fashion a life that proves that God is at work in you. So I want you to think with me, okay? By and large, no one is, is going to get in much trouble when they say, oh yeah, I died on the hospital table. I went to heaven, I saw stuff, I heard stuff, I did stuff, and now I'm back to tell the whole world about it, whether it was true or not. See, by and large, you won't get in a whole lot of trouble with the culture when you say that, but you say Jesus is Lord, and you say Jesus is God's Son, and He's the only way to escape God's wrath on our sin. And you say, well, I can't do that because Jesus is Lord, and I have to do that because Jesus is Lord. You do that, and there probably will be trouble. Remember the words of Jesus Christ? Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Remember Jesus when we were saying those grand things? Remember that? And in your name drive out demons? Remember how the crowd went, when we drove out demons, Jesus? And in your name perform many Many miracles. And then Jesus says, I'm going to tell them plainly. I never knew you. Jesus, why don't you know them? Away from me, you evil doers. I was never your Lord. I was never your Lord. So it's possible by, by means of a phenomenal dramatic display to have counterfeit experiences. And in the context of a worship service, if the person is good and dramatic, and if their Bible is misused or closed, then weak-willed people will follow that person right off a cliff. Right off a cliff. So Paul is essentially saying we better have some objective standards to assess all this stuff. To confess Jesus is Lord means nothing unless it involves the affirming of his person, the affirming of his work, and the obedience to his commands, right? Luke chapter 6, 46, Jesus says it pretty simply. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Jesus is like, don't do that. Come on now. You can't call me Lord and not do what I say. You know that. So let me just ask a few questions as we think about these things. Is Jesus Christ Lord? Is he Lord of your life? Is he Lord of your Sunday mornings? Is he Lord on payday? Is he Lord on Friday night and Saturday night? Is he Lord when you're doing the planning for the future around the table? Is he Lord when the call comes to evangelize? Is he Lord? Is Jesus Lord or is it the kids? Or the grandkids? Or the wife? Or the husband? Or the retirement? Or the job? Or ourselves? You can only say Jesus is Lord by lip and life, by the work of the Spirit, revealed in a life of wholehearted obedience and repentance. Because we won't get it right always, will we? And loved ones, that's spirituality. That's the test of spirituality. God's Spirit is given to God's people so that God's world may be drawn to God's Son, This is why we have spiritual gifts. Let me say it again. God's spirit is given to God's people so that God's world may be drawn to God's son. This is why we have spiritual gifts. So let me give you an assignment and give you a question. Assignment. 
Think of the last time you said Jesus is Lord in your home context. And if you haven't said it in a while, just say it. Jesus is Lord, so we have to do this. Jesus is Lord, so we're going to gladly do that. Jesus is Lord. That's your homework. You can watch that in between the football games today. I'm fine with that, whatever you want to do. But say it. Jesus is Lord. Second thing, here's your test question. So this morning, who's more spiritual? The person in the nursery wiping noses and wiping bottoms or the man behind the box preaching Jesus? You see? Think it out. Because the way that you answer the question will be the way that you think about spirituality. Yeah, one might have more prominence. We understand that. But both are spiritual. Because both are saying that wonderful statement that only the Spirit can help us say. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Let's bow together, please. And let's pray. And and thank you for your attention this morning. Father, you are so good to us to think about everything that was said. You called us out of darkness. You made us alive in our steep rebellion. You gave us gifts. You gave us your presence. In light of that, we still sin, and we're so desperately sorry for those things, God. And we pray that as a congregation, we'll get a right handle and exercise the gifts that you've given us correctly and wonderfully so that We can proclaim by word and by deed, Jesus is Lord. Because that's the only thing that can save people. That's the message, the one message that people need to know. They're going to find out eventually, Father, either at the end or their end. So I pray again for the glory of Jesus Christ. We would live a life that declares happily, joyfully, and even seriously that Jesus is Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord turn his face towards you this morning and give you peace. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.